John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. This is God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. We've just finished uh, the beginning of John chapter 2, which is the first sign that John records of Jesus's ministry, which is, of course, him turning the water into wine. And we saw how there is this key theme there of something new that is being ushered in by Jesus bringing the wine completely transformed from the water, which was very symbolic throughout the Old Testament of this new age, this age of restoration and purification that is coming. And this theme of newness continues in the rest of chapter two, in Jesus cleansing the temple. But we go from a smaller private setting of a private wedding to then the busiest time in the year for Jerusalem. It would be like doing a miracle at an Australia Day barbecue with five of your friends and then doing something just a few days later at the um, Australia Day awards ceremony televised to millions and millions of people. This is the kind of change that's happened. Jesus begins by giving this sign at this private wedding in not a predominant place in Palestine, just a small area of Cana. And then he goes to Jerusalem at Passover time. So we read this in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is by far the busiest time of the year for Jerusalem. At this stage, even in the first century, there are uh, hundreds of thousands, possibly a million Jews who have been scattered throughout the known world who aren't living in Jerusalem. And at Passover time, it would be very common for a lot of them to descend upon Jerusalem. There are estimates from historians at that time that uh, there would be, one estimate is there would be about 2.7 million people coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had a population of about two or 300,000 people. So you times that by 10 in one day, and that's what's happening at Passover. Masses and masses of people come to Jerusalem. And naturally Jesus, as a good Jew, keeps the Passover as they were required to do. So he comes to Jerusalem and as he comes to uh, his temple, because it is his father's house, we read in verse 14 that he finds those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons 
and the money changers sitting there. And as he sees this, he is filled with righteous anger. This picture of Jesus doesn't usually fit in with the modern 20th and 21st century pictures of Jesus, of meek and mild Jesus. But here he is filled with righteous anger over the state of the temple. Now, if we look at these things here that he sees, he sees people selling animals and then he sees money changes, people dealing in currency exchange. And part of the reason why these people are here is those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons are there because as we've established, there are many travelers that would come to Jerusalem. And it's quite difficult to bring a bunch of cattle with you to come to Jerusalem. So they had made this agreement where you could just bring money and purchase the animal and then you could sacrifice rather than having to bring the sheep or oxen with you, uh, you would just purchase the animal there. So they're actually trying to facilitate temple worship in a way. They're trying to give people the animal to then sacrifice. You just have to pay money for it. The money changes were there uh, because the temple tax had to be paid. This was for the ongoing maintenance for the temple, which Jews were required to do, to give to the Levitical priests and to uh, particular people in order that the temple would continue to be maintained. And you had to pay this in Jewish currency, in the currency of Judea at the time, in the Roman Empire. So you couldn't bring a Roman coin. You would have to exchange that to get proper currency to then pay the temple tax. So on surface level, some of these things seem like appropriate things to have to facilitate the ongoing maintenance of the temple and to facilitate sacrifices at Passover time. But Jesus clearly doesn't see it this way. There is a fury, I think it's safe to say, in Jesus at what is happening in his father's house. We read this in verses 15 to 16, where he makes a whip of cords. He drives the sheep and oxen out. You've Got to use a cord to, to whip them out. And this is quite a miracle in itself. Think about how many people were here, how many animals there would have been, all of the chaos. And it is a miracle in and of itself for one man to clear out the temple. That's crazy. There would have been masses of people here. So Jesus is whipping uh, these animals out. He, he pours out the coins of the money changes. He tips their tables upside down. And he says to those selling pigeons, get these things out of here. Do not turn my father's house into a house of trade. Trade is like a marketplace, a place of business. Now, again, it wasn't like these people set up a fruit and veg stall or were like selling newspapers in there. They're trying to facilitate what's required in the temple. That is the sacrifice of animals and the temple tax. So why was Jesus so furious with what was going on in the temple? What was the real issue that Jesus had with these people? And the real issue was that what was going on in the temple was characteristic of the same issues Israel had again and again throughout their history, which is superficial acts of worship that are totally void of genuine devotion and reverence to their God. Instead of 
humility and reverence in the temple, which there should be, it became a place for heartless worship and pragmatic business transactions to make people worship more easily, things that are more fitting for a marketplace than for a temple. Hence why Jesus says you've turned this into a marketplace, a place of trade. It's the same issue that God's people had seven or eight hundred years earlier that God addressed through the prophet Isaiah when he said in Isaiah 29, these people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is merely a commandment taught by men. In other words, they're just giving lip service. There is no heart that desires to reverence me. These religious practices that were going on both 800 years earlier and now in the temple have nothing to do with genuine devotion and everything to do with self-centered, man-inspired worship. In Isaiah 1, God addresses the same thing. Isaiah opens up by God addressing the people of Israel and he says from verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings and of rams. And the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He's saying, bring no more vain offerings toward me. I don't delight in these things at all. He goes on to say, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Interesting that there is a need of purification. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And he tells them to do good, seek justice, all of these sorts of things. It's God saying sacrifices and offerings mean very little to me when they are coming from a people who have hard and obstinate hearts. They mean nothing to me. So the heart of the issue is the issue of their hearts. In attempting to keep the religious rituals of Israel, they had simply succumbed to some form of heartless pragmatism that turned temple worship into a marketplace. So rather than finding the best lamb, the lamb without blemish to offer, you just get whatever lamb you get given at the trade place. Rather than a cost in bringing the offering, there is an ease of access. And there is also a way that people can profit off the sacrificial system there. Traders who receive a great profit from people purchasing their animals to then go and sacrifice them. So it was simply lip service to God and an utter insult to him. Now, as we think about what this looks like in our day, as I was reading through this and thinking about this, I I was honestly thinking this hits far too close to home for the modern church. Heartless pragmatism, religious acts void of genuine devotion, ease of access to offer worship. How easy it is when we look at the state of our church, particularly in the Western world, how easy it is for the church to become a place of business a service provider, offering services to religious consumers so that they would feel comfortable and feel at ease in their religious rituals. We lose 
the need for reverence and awe in our gatherings because we are appealing to people's need for entertainment. I was reading a book by A.W. Tozer and he was talking about the danger of this 70 years ago of entertainment in the church and he was talking about uh, heartless worship and the worship of Cain, as in between Cain and Abel, Abel offered a right sacrifice. Cain did not offer the right offering to the Lord as the Lord required. So we can't just offer anything. God actually requires the right offering. We not only do not worship false gods, but we also don't worship the true God falsely. He has prescribed how we are to worship him. And A.W. Tozer was talking about, at his point, the um, idolatry of worship concerts. Didn't realize these went on 70 years ago, but apparently they, they did, where you would go to a performance, like that happens all the time, there would be a Christian band, and there would be a whole lot of praise and worship. And then he said, imagine if you took the lyrics that those people were singing, and then on Sunday morning, you got some old godly saint to come up and just very calmly and clearly read out those very same lyrics. Would there be the same level of praise and adoration? And he says, the danger is they are worshiping the performance rather than the actual words. And that is a very dangerous thing when we come to the Lord. So I think as we look at our day, we need to be very wary of the way in which we offer these religious rituals and we offer a form of worship in a way that God has not prescribed, where we lose the need for cost in our sacrifices because we appeal to our selfish, cost-averse culture. So instead of meeting to pray to the living God, we meet to discuss the roster for the welcome team or the church bake sale, which aren't necessarily bad things, but the amount of time that is invested in talking about pragmatic things to do with the life of the church, rather than meeting to pray to the living God. Instead of meeting to repent and confess our sin before one another and actually hold each other accountable as brothers and sisters, we meet in personally tailored small groups to have some form of a therapy session where the last thing that happens is someone actually holding someone accountable. It's more like a chance to share and then move on to the next person who shares and no one ever holds that person accountable to that sin that they've shared. This is not a right form of worship. This is a modern secular idea of therapy. And these are all symptoms of a church that has succumbed to business-minded pragmatism that offers a form of worship which is really just lip service to God because our hearts remain curved in on themselves. The worship is really the self. We are facilitating how we can be most at ease. And that's such a dangerous thing. And do not think, anyone in this community, do not think we are immune to this in any way. We have a real danger of being like, I thank you, God, that we are not like that church over there. We pray twice a week and we do these things. We are not immune to this. We have to be constantly examining ourselves so that we do not succumb to the same foolishness of a lot of these pragmatic market-driven strategies of the modern church that really turns our father's house into a place of trade. So it should fill us with grief and we should be filled with humility to realize that we are not immune to this, this the sin nature means that we 
lean toward what is most easy and what is most comfortable. And often that is not always, but often averse to actually what is right and honorable before God. So one of the major themes in this passage that we're going to see is really about true worship, which is a theme that will be built up on as we go throughout John to John chapter four and Jesus boldly saying God is uh, now is coming a time where God is desiring people, uh, true worshippers who will worship in spirit and truth. So he is correcting all of the wrongs of the religious system of the day to bring about this need for true worship. Jesus very clearly demonstrates his desire for deep, pure worship in reverence and awe. True worship must cut to the heart and leave people in humility before God. And so to help us see how Jesus intends to bring this about, it helps us to just initially see what lies behind a lot of the symbolism in this event here. As we've already seen throughout the Gospel of John, there is much symbolism, like we saw last week in the miracle of the water turning into wine and the placing of that in John's Gospel and all of these Old Testament allusions that form the foundation of that. And there's a lot of this in Jesus cleansing the temple here as well. So what is the significance behind this event? And we're going to take perhaps a, a high level, like a we're at 30,000 feet in a plane now, and we'll look at three aspects of this, but then we will land the plane and come down to ground level and apply this in particular ways to us. So as we look at the overarching background of this, the first aspect of significance to this is that the symbolism of this very event, Jesus cleansing the temple, the symbolism that lies behind this, namely that of Jesus bringing purification and correcting the false religious worship and bringing purity to this true worship within the Father's temple. The symbolism of this was anticipated all throughout the Old Testament. So let's look specifically at what Jesus says to the merchants here in verse uh, 16. He says to those who sell pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is clearly a rebuke to the corrupt and impure temple practices that were going on. Now, as we look at a few passages in the Old Testament, we can see actually a lot of background to this. Zechariah 14. If you want to turn there, it's just a few uh, books back from the book of Matthew, Malachi, then you'll have Zechariah. Zechariah 14, which is the last chapter of the book of Zechariah. It talks a lot about the restoration of Israel. And it uh, begins describing in beautiful ways through the last several chapters, this picture of how life will look when things are restored, particularly in the end of Zechariah 14. So just in the last two verses, from verse 20 and 21 of Zechariah 14, we read, On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. Now this was what was supposed to be written on the front of the turban of the high priest, Holy to the Lord consecrated for the Lord's service. And this is saying on that day, that day of final restoration, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Holiness is extending far beyond the priest. 
read on a bit further. It says, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifices in them. Again, pots and pans in all of Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord. See how far purity is extending here in this picture. And then finally, the last line, there shall no longer be a trader, not T-R-A-I-T-O-R, but T-R-A-D-E-R, marketplace trader, a business person. There shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. See that picture. There There will be holiness that is extending to pots in Jerusalem. The horses will have holy to the Lord. And then it says there will no longer be any marketplace trade. There will no longer be trade in the house of the Lord. And then Jesus comes here back to John 2. He cleanses out the temple and he says, my father's house will not be a place of trade. It will not be a place of business transactions, void of genuine worship. So it is an allusion to the fact that the initial signs of this restoration that we are still ultimately longing for, we're looking for the very end of Revelation 21 in the picture of the temple there, but it is an, it is an illusion that Jesus is bringing about the initial fulfillment of these restorative promises. They are beginning to take shape. Another passage, Malachi chapter 3, just the next book on from Zechariah. In Malachi chapter 3, this is a passage we looked at because it refers a lot to John the Baptist. In the very first verse of Malachi 3, we read, I send my messenger, this is God speaking, and he will prepare the way before me. We've already seen how this points to John the Baptist. So this is God giving the spoiler alert that, hey, right before the Messiah comes, there's going to be a messenger we know that's John the Baptist. And then we read, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So this very clearly tells us that God is coming to his own temple. And immediately after this, In Malachi 3, it talks about refinement and purification. After Yahweh comes to his own temple, the Lord himself comes to his own temple. We read, He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. The sons of Levi were those who would be ministering in the temple or at least with temple-related duties. He will refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So these themes, again, are all here of the Lord coming to his temple and then purification coming, which we see in Jesus coming to the temple, cleansing it and bringing purification. And finally, just the last Old Testament passage in Psalm 69. We're getting this because in verse 17 of John chapter 2, we read, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So that's from Psalm 69, which is actually quoted at least nine times in the New Testament, a very common psalm used throughout the Old Testament. And just to give a bit of context, I'm going to read the context around the verse that we have here, namely, zeal for your house will consume me. So in Psalm 69, verses 7 to 12, we have, 
For it is for your sake, this is David writing, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. This psalm is basically talking about a lot of despair, a whole heap of shame that the psalmist is feeling. He has a zeal for the house of the Lord and for righteousness, and he sees wickedness prospering. So he feels in isolation He is covered in shame and dishonor. And is this not a fair picture of the Christ who comes, a man who was despised and rejected, well acquainted with grief and sorrow, and a man with a relentless passion for the glory of his father? So you can see from this psalm how it's pointing to a better David. It's a messianic psalm. So when the disciples... When they see Jesus' anger, well, they are good Jewish students. They recall this psalm and they remember, zeal for your house will consume me. They remember that it was ultimately pointing to the Christ who had the true zeal for his father's house, the one who would be willing to be covered in a similar shame for the sake of his God. So as we piece this together, we can see how the symbolism of this event here, and there are many more passages that we could turn to, but we can see all of the allusions from the Old Testament pointing to this day where within the temple, the Son of God would visit and would bring cleansing, and it would be pointing to a future reality where true cleansing would occur, which leads us to the second aspect of significance, that Jesus intends to purify much more than simply the physical temple. Jesus intends to purify much more than simply the physical temple. Clearly, Jesus has a desire for purity and, and cleanliness in the temple. He, in righteous anger, removes all of the filth of the traders and the animals that ought not to be there. And if we keep in mind everything we've just gone over with all of the Old Testament background, which is alluding to this moment of cleansing this desire from God to cleanse his temple. We can see that the expectation of God's people was that purification would come. And we can see this even clearer when we look at what Jesus says in verses 18 to 22. So let's look at verses 18 to 22, which is after the event and the Jews say to him, what sign do you do for for, uh, doing, what sign rather, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Which naturally, I mean, Jesus has just done a astounding thing, really, to cleanse the temple at Passover time. So he's either an utter lunatic or he's clearly possibly someone sent by God. So they don't just get him out of there and a Roman garrison doesn't come. They actually say, okay, this is really significant. Show us a sign that you are, that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus very clearly alludes to the fact that 
He is the temple, though they don't realize that at the time, though even his disciples may not have realized that at the time. We know here, well, afterwards, from verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he has said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And what had he said? Well, that is... Verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. So, of course, he was talking about his physical body. Destroy this. And in three days, I will raise it up, which is the picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Killed, fully enters into death, and then three days later, rises again. So, the picture we have is of Jesus coming to his temple, his father's house. He cleanses out all of the filth that ought not to have been there. And then he radically implies, I am the temple, which is a huge claim. And though he is speaking of his physical body, very clearly scripture throughout the New Testament talks about how we as the church become the spiritual body of Christ. And we become a part of the temple where he is the head And we as the church become the temple. So as we piece this all together, we can see that Jesus is very clearly bringing a purifying work that is extending far beyond the physical temple, that is going to extend to the the spiritual temple, the new temple that he is bringing about, which he brings about through the death and resurrection. And he is astoundingly removing all physical barriers to cleanliness. He is removing all of the physical barriers so that you don't come to a physical temple anymore for cleanliness, for atonement. Same theme that he will pick up on in John chapter 4. He removes all of the physical barriers so that purification is no longer bound to a physical location, but rather Jesus intends to purify completely all those who would enter his temple, which in other words is saying all those who would turn to Jesus as Messiah will be cleansed, will receive the pure cleansing work that the temple sacrificial system was always pointing to, the Passover lamb. So in him is a purification that no physical temple could ever offer. In the way that he drives out the impurity of the money changers and traders, he drives out the impurity of our corrupt desires, of all of the wickedness that we have thought, of our sinful nature, and all of the results of that. He drives that out in his purifying work so that, like the Apostle Paul, we can receive the words where he says to the Corinthians, You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. These are realities for you. You are clean. You are pure. The purifying work of Christ extends far beyond the physical temple and it reaches to all of the unclean, all of the unclean, filthy people like you and me. It reaches and extends to us in Christ. And thirdly, the last significant aspect before we then land the plain. Jesus reveals that a new spiritual temple is coming. We've already seen this in our last point. Jesus reveals that a new spiritual temple is coming. We know this because passages like Ephesians 2, 
says after Paul details how Jew and Gentiles come together as one new man in Christ himself. Then Paul finishes chapter two by saying, and in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. What is the dwelling place of God's presence? It is the temple. So we as the body become the temple or in one Peter two, Peter describes us as living stones being built up as a spiritual house and then calls us a royal priesthood. The priests are to serve in the temple. It's temple language here. The most explicit is Paul throughout 1 and 2 Corinthians where multiple times references the church as either the temple of the living God or the temple of the Holy Spirit saying your body is the temple. And there are huge implications for that. These very clearly demonstrate that we as the church become part of this new temple where God's presence is amongst us, which is a huge thing, which we probably don't think about enough, but just stop to think about the reality of God's presence dwelling among us by his spirit in a way that the tabernacle and temple were demonstrating where God's dwelling glory would dwell within the temple. And now Jesus has removed all of the physical barriers so that we as the church become the dwelling place of God's spirit. Because the ultimate once and for all sacrifice of the temple has been made in Jesus Christ. Purification has come. So we who were once unclean and impure have been washed and brought into this new temple where we have access to God's presence. Where we have purification now let's bring the plane down to ground level and just look at two main implications for this. Jesus very clearly demonstrates that he leaves no room for improper, irreverent worship. He leaves no space for that. God very clearly sets that out in the Old Testament where he prescribes the way in which his people are to worship. And specifically says to his people, make sure when you go into the land and you see all of these people, you don't worship me in their way. He'd already warned them about idolatry, but now he's saying, make sure you don't worship me in their way. That's detestable to me. You worship me in the way that I have prescribed. So how do we then live in light of this knowledge, knowing that Jesus has come to bring about this purifying work? And we are the temple, which is the place of worship. How do we live in light of that? Firstly, sacrificial worship must encapsulate all of your life. We obviously don't turn on and off worship, which is why Paul says in Romans 12, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, as is your true and proper worship, holy and acceptable to God. Paul is very clearly using temple-inspired language. Offer yourselves. Not just you bring an offering sometimes to God. No, no, no. You become the offering all the time. A living sacrifice. It's a bit like an oxymoron, a living sacrifice. But he's saying you die to yourself every day. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because that is your spiritual worship. Paul is saying, live your life as though you are constantly before the altar of God. As though you are constantly there 
at the altar, offering it. Whether you are in the supermarket, a friend's house, you are living before the altar of God. So our speech should be an offering to the Lord, which I think is actually what Paul is talking about in Colossians 4, where he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. And sometimes salt was included in offerings and saying, let your speech be as an offering to the Lord, a delightful, pleasing aroma to him. Let your conduct in the supermarket line or your living room be honorable because it is done within the temple of the living God. Let your whole life be an intentional, costly offering to the Lord. And the whole reason why is because of what he has done in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, offer yourself before he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, because of everything I've just gone over. Therefore, in light of that, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. So we, therefore, live in such a way that we are intentional in our offerings to the Lord, in offering ourselves. We are intentional about our speech. We are intentional about the careers we pursue. We are intentional about the relationships we have because they are all part of ourselves, which is given as an offering to the Lord. Second and finally, the implication of this for us is that we flee immorality and we pursue holiness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 to 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. This is the most comforting news in the world, that you are not your own, but you belong to God. That's a wonderful comfort. It also brings a significant responsibility. You don't exist for yourself. You are not your own. You who have been united to Christ, you are not your own. Your life is dead. The life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. He has purchased you. He has reached down in mercy and has cleansed you completely and has purchased you and now calls you to live in such a way that would honor him. He has washed you clean from all of your filthiness, all of our impurity, all of our wicked thoughts. He has cleansed us of. And more than that, he actually unites us with himself so that we become in Christ and therefore glorify God in your body, which means do not take what is holy and offer it to something impure and filthy. It's like if you were walking along Lake Tuggeranong, which is already quite a filthy lake, but imagine just one of the filthy corners of it, full of dead carp and toxic algae and probably a bit of vomit and all sorts of stuff, and you fall into it, head deep, way down, and there's dead fish on you, there's all sorts of things and it's, it's filthy and you can taste it. It's got in your mouth and you're just longing for the time where you can get home, have an hour long shower, get it all off of you so that you're clean. And then imagine just the absurdity of then you thinking, I might actually just jump back into that. It's, it's absurd. It's absolutely 
absurd. And yet that is what we do whenever we give ourselves to immorality. That's what we do. We give ourselves to filth that Christ, by his blood, by his precious blood, has cleansed you from. This is part of the point of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, where he's talking about sexual immorality. He's saying, don't give what is holy and offer it to this. This is disgusting. So because we have been cleansed, we flee immorality. We pursue holiness. We flee sexual sins like pornography or other graphic images, even with a lot of the clothing that people wear now. We flee that. We just, like Job, make a covenant with our eyes not to look at another woman like that. We flee these sorts of things and we pursue pure minds. We flee worldliness, whether it is gossip or materialism. We flee these sorts of things and we pursue integrity and honorable speech. Our lives belong to Christ. And do you see the language that Paul is using? He uses the language of fleeing. I wonder if there is an urgency in your life of fleeing immorality. Because fleeing suggests an urgency. Most of the time, I think we treat immorality and sin kind of like maybe flies or mosquitoes when you're trying to have a nice dinner and and you're kind of casual. And of course, you don't want them there, but you just try and put on some repellent and hope that they'll go away or hope that someone with more attractive blood takes all of the mosquitoes or something like that. There's no sense of urgency to actually fleeing. But imagine having a dinner party and there is a devouring lion there. You wouldn't put on some repellent. You're, you're, you're fleeing. You are fleeing from that. And part of the problem is that we just view sin so lightly. Like we can just put on some repellent, read a verse before I go out and hang out with worldly people. That's not what scripture calls us to. There is an urgency We flee, we treat sin like the devouring lion that it is, since it ultimately stems from the prince of evil, who is a devouring lion waiting to devour us. We flee from this and fleeing, fleeing here is synonymous with clinging to Christ our Savior. We don't simply flee and then go about our business. We flee by clinging to Christ by clinging to him, by calling upon our father in the day of trouble and knowing that he will deliver us. That's how we flee. It is synonymous with us clinging to Christ and calling upon him and remembering his righteousness that is now imputed to us so that when we stand before the father, regardless of the filth that we have exposed ourselves to, we come back to the fact that he is our righteousness. We are pure, we are washed, we are justified. We will stand before him and be declared righteous, completely clean. So we flee immorality and we pursue holiness. We actually fight for purity. Think of the righteous anger that Jesus had here in cleansing the temple and remembering that we are the temple and that he is jealous for us. He is jealous for purity in our lives. So we fight for purity as we offer ourselves daily before the altar of God, knowing that the once and for all sacrifice which makes us clean has already been made. So last statement from 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, in talking about a very similar theme, he says, let us 
cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Paul knows we've been cleansed. He's saying, let us continue to live in a way that is consistent with the reality of what Christ has done. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's how we do it. Let me pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, we, we humble ourselves now in your holy presence. And we are in awe of the purifying work that you have done. And yet we feel such a weight of responsibility to live in a way that is consistent with the new life that we have, the new clean and pure life. And so we plead for your help. We want to flee immorality by clinging to Christ, our Savior. We ask that you would grant us the grace to do this, to always remember your jealousy, your righteous anger toward sinfulness and immorality, which creeps its way into your holy place. Let us as your people be very, very attentive to all sorts of defilements and immorality and let us flee that and pursue holiness and offer ourselves as living sacrifices because that is acceptable to you and that is our true and proper worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.